Dracula by Bram Stoker. Presented by the Oakville Players. Previously, the men sneak into Carfax, finding 29 boxes of earth remain out of the 50 the Count brought from Transylvania. They zero in on a house in Piccadilly and puzzle over how to break into the Count's city estate. Mina feels weak and is not sleeping well. Renfield is mortally wounded by his master. He alerts the men to Dracula's nightly attacks on Mina. The men break down her door, witnessing Mina forced to drink the monster's blood. Dracula escapes into the night. And you, their beloved one, are now to me, flesh of my flesh. You have aided in thwarting me. Now you shall come to my call. Episode 9, This Mark of Shame. Journal, 3rd October. As I must do something or go mad, I write this diary. It is now 6 o'clock and we are to meet in the study in half an hour and take something to eat. Poor Mina told me just now, with the tears running down her dear cheeks, that it is in trouble and trial that our faith is tested, that we must keep on trusting, and that God will aid us up to the end. The end. Oh, my God, what end? To work. To work. Dr. Seward told us that when he and Dr. Van Helsing had gone down to the room below, they had found Renfield lying on the floor, all in a heap. His face was all bruised and crushed in, and the bones of his neck were broken. When the question began to be discussed as to what should be our next step, the very first thing we decided was that Mina should be in full confidence that nothing of any sort, no matter how painful, should be kept from her. She herself agreed as to its wisdom, and it was pitiful to see her so brave and yet so sorrowful and in such a depth of despair. It is perhaps well. After our visit to Carfax, we decided not to do anything with the earth boxes that lay there. Had we done so, the Count might have guessed our purpose, and would doubtless have taken measures in advance to frustrate such an effort with regard to the others. Today, then, is ours, and in it rests our hope. Until the sun sets tonight, that monster must retain whatever form he has now. He is confined within the limitations of this earthly envelope, and so we have this day to hunt out all his lairs and sterilize them. But think, in all probable, the key of the situation is in that house in Piccadilly. There are many belongings that he must have somewhere. Why not in this place so central, so quiet, where he come and go by the front and back at all hour? Then let us come at once. We are wasting the precious, precious time. And how are we to get into that house in Piccadilly? We shall break in if need be. <laughs> there is no wish of me to add to your anguish. I have sought and sought... And it seems to me the simplest way is best of all. Now, we wish to get into the house, but we have no key. Is it not so? Now, suppose that you were in truth the owner of that house and could still not get it. What would you do? I should get a respectable locksmith and set him to work to pick the lock for me. And your police, they would interfere, would they not? 
Oh, no. Not if they knew the man was properly employed. Ha, then all that is in doubt is the conscience of the employer and the belief of your policeman as to whether or no the employer has a good conscience or a bad one. We shall go after ten o'clock, when there are many about, and such things would be done were we indeed owners of the house. And some of us can remain there while the rest find the places with the other earth boxes at Bermondsey and Mile End. I shall wire to my people to have horses and carriages where they will be most convenient. Mina took a growing interest in everything, and I was rejoiced to see that the exigency of affairs was helping her to forget for a time the terrible experience of the night. She was very, very pale, almost ghastly, and so thin that her lips were drawn away, showing her teeth in somewhat of prominence. It made my blood run cold in my veins to think of what had occurred with poor Lucy when the Count had sucked her blood. It was finally agreed that before starting for Piccadilly, we should destroy the Count's lair close at hand. After our visit to Carfax, we should all enter the house in Piccadilly, that the two doctors and I should remain there, whilst Lord Godalming and Quincy found the lairs at Walloth and Mile End and destroyed them. It was possible, if not likely, the professor urged, that the Count might appear in Piccadilly during the day, and that if so, we might be able to cope with him then and there. And to this plan I strenuously objected, for I said that I intended to stay and protect Mina. But Mina would not listen to my objection. She said that there might be some law matter in which I could be useful, that amongst the Count's papers might be some clue which I could understand out of my experience in Transylvania. I had to give in, for Mina's resolution was fixed. As for me, I have no fear. Things have been as bad as they can be, and whatever may happen must have in it some element of hope or comfort. Now, my dear friends, we go forth to our terrible enterprise. Are we all armed as before on the night when we first visited our enemy's lair? Then it is well. Now, Madam Mina, you are in any case safe here until sunset, and before then we shall return. But before we go, let me see you armed against personal attack. I have prepared your chamber by the placing of things which we know so that he may not enter. Now... Let me guard yourself. On your forehead I touch this piece of sacred favor in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Ah! There was a fearful scream which almost froze our hearts to hear. As he had placed the wafer on Mina's forehead, it had seared it, had burned into the flesh as though it had been a piece of white-hot metal. She sank on her knees on the floor in an agony of abasement. She pulled her beautiful hair over her face as the leper of old his mantle. Oh, unclean! Unclean! Even the Almighty shuns my polluted flesh! I must bear this mark of shame upon my forehead until the judgment day. I had thrown myself beside her in an agony of helpless grief and putting my arms around, held her tight. Oh, Madam Mina, my dear, my dear, may we who love you be there to see when that red scar, the sign of God's knowledge of what has been, shall pass away and leave your forehead as pure as the heart we know. There was hope in his words and comfort, and they made for resignation. Then without a word, 
we all knelt down together, and all holding hands, swore to be true to each other. We men pledged ourselves to raise the veil of sorrow from the head of her whom, each in his own way, we loved. And we prayed for help and guidance in the terrible task which laid before us. It was then time to start, so I said farewell to Mina, a parting which neither of us shall forget to our dying day, and we set out. To one thing I have made up my mind. If we find out that Mina must be a vampire in the end, then she shall not go into that unknown and terrible land alone. We entered Carfax without trouble and found things all the same as on the first occasion. It was hard to believe that amongst so prosaic surroundings of neglect and dust and decay there was any ground for such fear as we already knew. We found no papers or any sign of use in the house and in the old chapel the great boxes looked just as we had seen them last. And now, my friends, we must sterilize this earth so sacred of holy memories that has been brought to a far and distant land for such fell use. He has chosen this earth because it has been holy. Thus, we defeat him with his own weapon, for we make it more holy still. As he spoke, he took from his bag a screwdriver and a wrench, and very soon the top of one of the cases was thrown open. The earth smelled musty and close. Taking from his box a piece of the sacred wafer, he laid it reverently on the earth and then shutting down the lid began to screw it home, we aiding him as he worked. One by one we treated in the same way each of the great boxes, and left them as we had found them, to all appearance, but in each was a portion of the host. We sought the station and just caught the train, which was steaming in as we reached the platform. I have written this in the train, Piccadilly, 12.30 o'clock, just before we reached Fenchurch Street. Quincy and I will find a locksmith. Harker, you had better not come with us in case there should be any difficulty. My title will make it all right with the locksmith, and with any policeman that may come along. You had better go with Jack and the professor and stay somewhere in sight of the house. And when you see the door opened, do you all come across. We shall be on the lookout for you, and shall let you in. Godalming and Morris hurried off in a cab, we following in another. Oh, my heart beat as I saw the house on which so much of our hopes was centred, looming up grim and silent in its deserted condition amongst its more lively and spruce-looking neighbours. We sat down on a bench within good view and began to smoke cigars so as to attract as little attention as possible. At length, we saw a four-wheeler drive up, out of it, in leisurely fashion, got Lord Godalming and Morris, and down from the box descended a thick-set working man with his rush-woven basket of tools. Together the two ascended the steps, and Lord Godalming pointed out what he wanted done. The workman took off his coat, saying something to a policeman who was just then sauntering along. The policeman nodded as the man kneeled and looked into the keyhole. Lord Godalming smiled and... The man lifted a good-sized bunch of keys. After fumbling about for a bit, the door opened under a slight push from him, and he and the two others entered the hall. 
We waited patiently as we saw the workman come out and bring in his bag. Then he fitted a key to the lock. This he finally handed to Lord Godalming, who took out his purse and gave him something. The man touched his hat, took his bag and coat, and departed. Not a soul took the slightest notice of the whole transaction. When the man had fairly gone, we three crossed the street and knocked at the door. It was immediately opened by Quincy Morris and Lord Godalming. The place smells so vilely. It did indeed smell vilely, like the old chapel at Carfax. We moved to explore the house, all keeping together in case of attack, for we knew we had a strong and wily enemy to deal with, and as yet we did not know whether the Count might not be in the house. In the dining room, which lay at the back of the hall, we found eight boxes of earth. Our work was not over, and would never be until we should have found the missing boxes. It was evident to us that the Count was not at present in the house, and we proceeded to search for any of his effects. The dining room also contained effects which might belong to the Count, and so we proceeded to minutely examine them. There were title deeds of the Piccadilly House in a great bundle, deeds of the purchases of the houses at Mile End and Bermondsey. All were covered up in a thin wrapping paper to keep them from the dust. Last of all was a little heap of keys of all sorts and sizes, probably those belonging to the other houses. When we had examined this last find, Lord Godalming and Quincy Morris, taking accurate notes of the various addresses of the house in the east and the south, took with them the keys in a great bunch and set out to destroy the boxes in these places. Third October. The time seemed terribly long whilst we were waiting for the coming of Godalming and Quincy Morris. Harker, the poor fellow, is overwhelmed in a misery that is appalling to see. He is a drawn, haggard old man with the hollow, burning eyes and grief-written lines of his face. His energy is still intact. In fact, he is like a living flame. This may yet be his salvation, for if all go well, it will tide him over the despairing period. The professor is doing his best to keep his mind active. My child, do not despair. Already all of his lairs but one be sterilized for him. And before the sunset, this shall be so. Then he have no place where he can move and hide. If all be well, when Arthur and Quincy are on their way to us. Whilst he was speaking, we were startled by a knock at the hall door. We all moved out to the hall with one impulse, and Van Helsing, holding up his hand to us to keep silence, stepped to the door and opened it. The postboy handed in a telegram. Look out for D. He has just now, 12.45, come from Carfax hurriedly and hastened towards the south. It will take him time to arrive here. See, it is 20 minutes past one. What we must hope for is that Lord Arthur and Quincy arrive first. About half an hour after we had received Mrs. Harker's telegram, there came a quiet, resolute knock at the hall door. We each held ready to use our various armaments. Van Helsing pulled back the latch. The gladness of our hearts must have shown upon our faces, when on the step, close to the door, we saw Lord Godalming and Quincy Morris. It is all right. We found both places, six boxes in each, and we destroyed them all. Destroyed? For him. There's nothing to do but to wait here. If, however, he doesn't turn up by five o'clock, we must start off, for it won't do to leave Mrs. Harker alone after sunset. He will be here before long now. In Madame's telegram, he went south from Carfax. That means he went to cross the river. 
he is as yet only suspicious. Believe me, my friends, we shall not have long to wait now. Have all your arms. Be ready. We all could hear a key softly inserted in the lock of the hall door. I could not but admire, even at such a moment, the way in which a dominant spirit asserted itself. In all our hunting parties and adventures in different parts of the world, Quincy Morris had always been the one to arrange the plan of action, and Arthur and I had been accustomed to obey him implicitly. Now the old habit seemed to be renewed instinctively. Without speaking a word, with a gesture, he placed us each in position. Van Helsing, Harker and I were just behind the door. Godalming behind and Quincy in front stood just out of sight, ready to move in front of the window. We waited in a suspense that made the seconds pass with nightmare slowness. The slow, careful steps came along the hall. The Count was evidently prepared for some surprise. Suddenly, with a single bound, he leapt into the room, winning away past us before any of us could raise a hand to stay him. There was something so panther-like in the movement, something so unhuman, that it seemed to sober us all from the shock of his coming. The first to act was Harker, who with a quick movement threw himself before the door and made a fierce and sudden cut at him with his great knife. As the Count saw it, a horrible sort of snarl passed over his face, showing the eye teeth long and pointed. Instinctively, I moved forward with a protective impulse, holding the crucifix and wafer in my left hand. The monster cowered back before a similar movement made spontaneously by each one of us. The red scar on the forehead showed on the pallid skin like a palpitating wound. The next instant, with a sinuous dive, he swept under Harker's arm ere a blow could fall and, grasping a handful of the money from the floor, dashed across the room, threw himself at the window. Amid the crash and glitter of the falling glass, he tumbled into the flagged area below. We ran over and saw him spring, unhurt from the ground. You think to baffle me, you with your pale faces all in a row like a sheep in a butcher's. You shall be sorry yet, each one of you. I think you have left me without a place to rest, but I have more. My revenge is just begun. I spread it over centuries and time is on my side. With a contemptuous sneer, he passed quickly through the door, and we heard the rusty bolt creak as he fastened it behind him. The first of us to speak was the professor, as, realising the difficulty of following him through the stable, we moved toward the hall. He fears us, for if not, why he hurry so? His very tone betray him, or my ears deceive. Why take that money? You, follow quick, for me. I make sure that nothing here may be of use to him, if so that he return. He put the money remaining into his pocket, took the title deeds in the bundle as Harker had left them, and swept them into the open fireplace, where he set fire to them with a match. Godalming and Morris had rushed out into the yard, and Harker had lowered himself from the window to follow the Count. By the time they had forced the stable door open, there was no sign of him. It was now late in the afternoon, and sunset was not far off. We had to recognise that our game was up. Let us go back to Madame Mina. All we can do just now is done. And we can, sir, at least protect her. But we need not despair. There is but one more earth box, and we must try to find it. When that is done, all may yet be well.
With sad hearts, we came back to my house, where we found Mrs. Hark awaiting us, with an appearance of cheerfulness which did honour to her bravery and unselfishness. When she saw our faces, her own became as pale as death. For a second or two, her eyes were closed as if she were in secret prayer. I can never thank you all enough. Oh, my poor darling, all will yet be well, dear. We were all less miserable and saw the morrow as not altogether without hope. True to our promise, we told Mrs. Harker everything which had passed. She listened bravely and with calmness. When we came to the part where Harker had rushed at the Count so recklessly, she clung to her husband's arm and held it tight as though her clinging could protect him from any harm that might come. If I could send his soul forever and ever into burning hell, I would do it! Oh, hush, hush, don't say such things, Jonathan, my husband, or you will crush me with fear and horror. That poor soul who has wrought all this misery is the saddest case of all. Just think what will be his joy when his better part may have spiritual immortality. I have been thinking all this long, long day of it, that perhaps someday I too may need such pity and that some other like you may deny it to me. We men were all in tears now. There was no resisting them, and we wept openly. She wept too to see that her sweeter counsels had prevailed. Before they retired, the professor fixed up the room against any coming of the vampire and assured Mrs. Harker that she might rest in peace. When they had retired, Quincy Godalming and I arranged that we should sit up, dividing the night between us, and watch over the safety of the poor stricken lady. Journal, 3rd October, close to midnight. I thought today would never end. One earth box remained, and that the Count alone knew where it was. If he chooses to lie hidden, he may baffle us for years. This I know, that if ever there was a woman who was all perfection, that one is my poor wronged darling. I love her a thousand times more for her sweet pity. A pity that made my own hate of the monster seem despicable. And surely God will not permit the world to be the poorer by the loss of such a creature. 4th October, morning. Once again during the night, I was wakened by Mina. The grey of the coming dawn was making the windows into sharp oblongs, and the gas flame was like a small speck. Go. Call the professor. I want to see him at once. Why? I have an idea. He must hypnotize me before the dawn, and then I shall be able to speak. Go quick, dearest. The time is getting close. I went to the door. Dr. Seward was resting on the mattress, and seeing me, he sprang to his feet. Is anything wrong? No. Mina wants to see Dr. Van Helsing at once. I will go. In two or three minutes later, Van Helsing was in the room in his dressing gown, and Mr. Morris and Lord Godalming were with Dr. Seward at the door, asking questions. Oh, my dear Madamina, you smile. This is indeed a change. And what am I to do for you? For at this hour, you do not want me for nothings. I want you to hypnotize me. 
Do it before the dawn, for I feel that then I can speak, and speak freely. Be quick, for the time is short. Looking fixedly at her, the professor commenced to make passes in front of her, for over the top of her head, downward, with each hand in turn. Mina gazed at him fixedly for a few minutes, during which my own heart beat like a trip hammer. Gradually, her eyes closed, and she sat stock still. Only by the gentle heaving of her bosom could one know that she was alive. The professor made a few more passes, and then stopped. Mina opened her eyes, but she did not seem the same woman. There was a faraway look in her eyes, and her voice had a sad dreaminess, which was new to me. Where are you? I do not know. It is all strange to me. What do you see? I can see nothing. It is all dark. What do you hear? The lapping of water. It is gurgling by and little waves leap. I can hear them on the outside. Then you are on a ship. Oh, yes. What else do you hear? The sound of men stamping overhead as they run about, pulling chains and setting sails. What are you doing? I am still. Oh, so still. The voice faded away into a deep breath, and the open eyes closed again. By this time the sun had risen, and we were all in the full light of day. Dr. Van Helsing placed his hand on Mina's shoulders and laid her head down softly on her pillow. She lay like a sleeping child for a few moments, and then, with a long sigh, awoke and stared in wonder to see us all around her. She was eager to know what she had told. The professor repeated their conversation. Then there is not a moment to lose. It may not yet be too late. That ship, wherever it was, was weighing anchor whilst you spoke. There are many ships weighing anchor at the moment. Which of them is it that you seek? God be thanks that we have once again a clue. He have take his last earth box on board a ship, and he leaves the land. He think to escape, but no, we follow him. In meantime, we may rest in peace, for there are waters between us. See, the sun is just rose, and all the day to sunset is to us. Let us take bath and dress and have breakfast, which we all need. But why need we seek him further, when he has gone away from us? Because, my dear, dear Madam Mina, he can live for centuries. You are but mortal woman. Time is now to be dreaded, since once he put that mark upon your throat. Dr. Seward's phonography diary, spoken by Van Helsing. This is to Jonathan Harker. You are to stay with your dear Madam Mina and take care of her today. He, our enemy, have gone back to his castle in Transylvania. He saw that with but one earth box left, and a pack of men following like dogs after fox, this London was no place for him. For this, he took the money. For this, he hurry at last, lest we catch him before the sun go down. He find ship going by the route he came, and he go in it. We go off now to find what ship, and visa bound, all is not lost. 
We are strong, each in our purpose. And we are all the more strong together. Take heart afresh, dear husband of Madame Mina. This battle is but begun, and in the end, we shall win. Fifth October, five p.m. Our meeting for report. Present: Professor Van Helsing, Lord Godalming, Dr. Seward, Mr. Quincy Morris, Jonathan Harker, Mina Harker. Dr. Van Helsing described what steps were taken during the day to discover on what boat and whither bound Count Dracula made his escape. As I know, he wanted to get back to Transylvania. I felt sure that he must go by the Danube mouth. So. We start to find what ships leave for the Black Sea last night. He was in the sailing ship since Madame tells of sails being set. So we go by suggestion of Lord Gottleming to your Lloyds. There are note of all ships that sail. There we find that only one Black Sea-bound ship go out with the tide. She is the Serena Catherine, and she sails from Doolittle's Wharf for Varna. Our enemy is on the sea, on his way back to the Danube mouth. To sail a ship take time. Go she never so quick, and when we start, we go on land more quick, and we meet him there. Our best hope is to come on him, then in the box between sunrise and sunset. We may deal with him as we should. There are days for us in which we can make ready our plan. We know all about where he go. The box we seek is to be landed in Varna. We could not but see that personal dominance, which made him so long a master amongst men. The world will not be given over to monsters. We go out as old knights of the cross to redeem more. Like them, we shall travel towards the sunrise. And like them, if we fall, we fall in good cause. Fifth October, when we met at early breakfast, there was more general cheerfulness. Than any of us had ever expected to experience again. It is really wonderful how much resilience there is in human nature. Let any obstructing cause, no matter what, be removed in any way, even by death, and we fly back to first principles of hope and enjoyment. We are to meet here in my study in half an hour and decide on our course of action. We shall all have to speak frankly, and yet I fear that in some mysterious way, poor Mrs. Harker's tongue is tied. I know that she forms conclusions of her own, and from all that has been, I can guess how brilliant and how true they must be. But she will not or cannot give them utterance. I suppose it is some of that horrid poison which has got into her veins, beginning to work. One thing I know: the same power that compels her silence may compel her speech. Later, Mrs. Harker had sent a message by her husband to say that she would not join us at present. As she thought it better that we should be free to discuss our movements without her presence, we went at once into our plan of campaign. The Serena Catherine left the Thames yesterday morning. It will take her, at the quickest speed she has ever made, at least three weeks to reach Varna. But we can travel overland to the same place in three days. Now, if we allow for any delays, which may occur, then we have a margin of nearly two weeks. Thus, in order to be quite safe. We must leave on the seventeenth at latest. Then we shall, at any rate, be in Varna a day before the ship arrives, and able to make such preparations as may be necessary. I propose that we add Winchesters to our armament. 
I have a kind of belief in a Winchester when there's any wolf trouble around. Good. Winchesters it shall be. In the meantime, we can do nothing here, and I think that Varna is not familiar to any of us. Why not go there more soon? It is as long to wait here as there. Tonight and tomorrow we can get ready, and then, if all be well, we four can set out on our journey. We four? Of course. You must remain here to take care of your so sweet wife. I want to consult with Mina. Fifth October, afternoon. Mina's determination not to take any part in the discussion set me thinking. And as I could not argue the matter with her, I could only guess. The last time we talked of the subject, we agreed that there was to be no more concealment of anything amongst us. Later, as the evening drew on and the earth took its shadows from the sun sinking lower, the silence of the room grew more and more solemn. All at once, Mina opened her eyes. Jonathan, I want you to promise me something on your word of honour. You can ask Dr. Van Helsing if I am not right. If he disagrees, you may do as you will. I promise. Promise me that you will not tell me anything of the plans formed for the campaign against the Count. Not by word or inference or implication. Not at any time whilst this remains to me. She solemnly pointed to the scar. I saw that she was in earnest. I promise. I felt that from that instant, a door had been shut between us. Sixth October morning. Mina woke me early, about the same time as yesterday, and asked me to bring Dr. Van Helsing. I thought that it was another occasion for hypnotism and without question went for the professor. I must go with you on your journey. But why? You must take me with you. I am safer with you, and you shall be safer too. But why, dear Madam Mina, we go into danger to which you are or may be more liable than any of us? She raised her finger and pointed to her forehead. This is why I must go. I can tell you now, whilst the sun is coming up, I may not be able again. I know that when the Count wills me, I must go. I know that if he tells me to come in secret, I must come by wile, by any device to hoodwink, even Jonathan. I could only clasp her hand. I could not speak. My emotion was too great for even the relief of tears. You men are brave and strong. I may be of service, since you can hypnotize me and so learn that which even I myself do not know. <sighs> Madam Mina, you are as always most wise. You shall with us come, and together we shall do that which we go forth to achieve. Van Helsing motioned to me to come with him quietly. We went to his room, and within a minute, Lord Godalming, Dr. Seward, and Mr. Morris were with us also. He told them what Mina had said. In the morning, we shall leave for Varna. We have now to deal with a new factor, Madam Mina. Oh, but her soul is true. It is to her an agony to tell us so much as she has done, and we are warned in time. 
in Varnach. We must be ready to act the instant when the ship arrives. What shall we do exactly? We shall at first board the ship. When we have identified the box, then none are near to see. We shall open the box and... and all will be well. I shall not wait for any opportunity. When I see the box, I shall open it and destroy the monster, though there were a thousand men looking on, and if I am to be wiped out for it the next moment. Brave boy, Quincy is old man. God bless him for it. My child, believe me, none of us shall lag behind or pause from any fear. Now, let us today put all our affairs in order, for none of us can tell what, who, when, or how the end may be. Eleventh October, evening. Jonathan Harker has asked me to note this, as he says he is hardly equal to the task, and he wants an exact record kept. I think that none of us were surprised when we were asked to see Mrs. Harker a little before the time of sunset. We have of late come to understand that sunrise and sunset are to her times of peculiar freedom, and her old self can be manifest without any controlling force subduing or restraining her. Tonight, when we met... She was somewhat constrained and bore all the signs of an internal struggle. I put it down myself to her making a violent effort at the earliest instant she could do so. A very few minutes, however, gave her complete control of herself, and then motioning her husband to sit beside her on the sofa where she was half reclining, she made the rest of us bring chairs up close. We are all here together, in freedom for perhaps the last time, in the morning we go out upon our task, and God alone knows what may be in store for any of us. You are going to be so good to me as to take me with you. There is a poison in my blood, in my soul, which may destroy me. Oh, my friends, you know as well as I do that my soul is at stake. And though I know there is one way out for me, you must not, and I must not take it. What is that way? That I may die now, either by my own hand or that of another. I know, and you know, that were I once dead, you could and would set free my immortal spirit, even as you did my poor Lucy's. Were death or the fear of death the only thing that stood in the way, I would not shrink to die here, now, amidst the friends who love me. But death is not all. We were all silent, for we knew instinctively that this was only a prelude. What will each of you give? Your lives, I know. That is easy for brave men. Your lives are God's, and you can give them back to him. But what will you give to me? I shall tell you plainly what I want, for there must be no doubtful matter in this connection between us now. You must promise me, one and all, even you, my beloved husband, that should the time come, you will kill me. What is that time? When you shall be convinced that I am so changed, that it is better that I die, that I may live. When I am thus dead in the flesh, then you will, without a moment's delay, drive a stake through me and cut off my head or do whatever else may be wanting. To give me rest. I'm only a rough fellow who hasn't, perhaps, lived as a man should to win such a distinction. 
But I swear to you, by all that I hold sacred and dear, that should the time ever come, I shall not flinch from the duty that you have set us. My true friend. I swear the same, my dear Madam Mina. I followed myself. Then her husband turned to her one-eyed and with a greenish pallor. And must I, too, make such a promise? Oh, my wife. You, too, my dearest. You must not shrink. You are nearest and dearest in all the world to me. Our souls are knit into one. And, oh, my dear, if it is to be that I must meet death at any hand... Let it be at the hand of him that loves me best. Dr. Van Helsing, I have not forgotten your mercy in poor Lucy's case to him who had best right to give her peace. If that time shall come again, I look to you to make it a happy memory of my husband's life that it was his loving hand which set me free from the awful thrall upon me. Again, I swear. And now, one word of warning, a warning which you must never forget. This time, if it ever come, may come quickly and unexpectedly, and in such case you must lose no time in using your opportunity. At such a time I myself might be, nay, if the time ever comes, shall be, leagued with your enemy against you. But, oh, my dear one, may death be afar off from you. Nay, I am deeper in death at this moment than if the weight of an earthly grave lay heavy upon me. Dracula, the Radio Play Miniseries, Episode 9, Cast. Manir Maliknur as Jonathan Harker. Heather Smith as Mina. Kenneth Sergianko as Dr. Seward. Robert Harrower as Van Helsing and Dracula. Duncan Cairns as Quincy Arthur. And I'm Tina Aurora. Directed and edited by Robin Sadaboy and produced by Alex Ragozino for the Oakville Players. For information about Creative Commons licensed music used in this episode, see the episode description. Sound effects from Pixabay and freesound.org. And I. Two words. Two words. Yeah. <laughs> Poor Arthur. Don't you remember? I was important in this story once. Yeah. They just used me for my money, I swear. Yeah.